Hi, my name is Roger Berkowitz. I am founder and academic director of the Hannah Arendt Center. And this week I am joined by Martin Guri, and we are going to be talking about his new book, The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. Hi, Martin. Hey, Roger. Good to see you again. Um, maybe we begin, Martin, by you telling us when you decided to write this book, The Revolt of the Public. That's, that's actually a, a good story. Um, I was, for many years, uh, an analyst at CIA. Um, two things happened, among many others, that led to this book. Number one was I, my, I was an analyst. My specialization was global media. So um, when I started out, global media was a trickle. You could literally, even in a developed country like, say, Britain, you could literally read everything that was of interest to, say, the United States government in a day. You could condense it and send it forward and say, well, this is what the media in Britain has said that may be of interest to you. Halfway through my career, things started to get hairy. Uh, there was the, the amount of information uh, began to balloon. Um, in a place like CIA, of course, that would that create a really interesting dynamic because they love secrets. So it's all of a sudden this, the, the importance of secrets versus the importance of open information began to switch. By the time that the OOs hit, it was what I have called a, a tsunami of information. And this tsunami of information from where I was sitting, I got to see translations of these uh, uh, media uh, pieces all over the world. You could see it hitting different countries and you could see immediately these countries going into political turbulence, which was, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, so that was the first thing was that I was in a very privileged perch to see the digital tsunami sweep around the world and start to knock down, I mean, you think of a, a regime like Hosni Mubarak, I mean, they call him the Pharaoh, right? That he had been there forever and he was expected to, to pass it on to his son and suddenly he's gone in three weeks. I mean, it, you start to see things that um, seem inconceivable before. The other thing was there were a group of us in CIA that kind of advocated doing things differently because of all that. And uh, we're somewhat successful, but not nearly as much as I would have liked to have been. And when I retired, I left CIA, I decided, well, with my money where my mouth is, I want to do an analysis in the way I think it should be done, given the enormous number of sources and the tremendous turbulence in the world today that I'm seeing, and put it all together in a framework that would make people uh, understand better what is going on outside their windows. It seemed to me that we were stuck very much in um, a very antiquated mode of talking, where we talk about liberals versus conservatives, uh, right versus left. I mean, when you think about it, those are um, 200 or 150-year-old terms. And much of what I was seeing seemed to have left those things in the dust. They had just kind of swept by that, and the difference seemed to be between people who were in the old established mode of, of doing business and people who had, were in that crazy digital, you know, I don't know what to call it, universe, um, that seemed to sometimes erupt on the streets uh, and, and, and challenge the established order in ways that they found very surprising and very hard to deal with. 
So the book was basically an attempt to explain that uh, conceptually as a framework. So it's not just a story of how this happened, although it's partly that, but it's also a way, uh, kind of a, a framework you can apply to almost any situation, I hope, and get a better understanding of, of what's going on. Yes, I mean, you know, you say, I mean, one of the things I love about your book is you constantly step back and say, here's how I would analyze things if I, as if I were still at the CIA. And yep. here's my analysis. Yep. And you come up with um, a battle. You say at one point it's a battle between the authority of the elites and the public. And you also say that your story concerns the tectonic collision between a public which will not rule and elite institutions that are of authority that are progressively less able to rule. What is this battle? Who are, so who are the, you, on the one hand is the elite and on the other hand is the public. Can you give us a, a definition of the elite and a definition of the public? The elites is probably the simpler one. They are the men and women who basically run the institutions of modern society. Uh, when you look them up as individuals, they have enormous accreditation. They have usually jumped through hoops of fire to get their degrees and um, their um, basic uh, apprenticeship uh, and mentorship uh, so that they could rise up to, to, um, to run these institutions. And the government is the one that I, of course, uh, focus in on. But uh, business, for example, is, is very much organized uh, on this, on this uh, model. And um, journalism is organized on this model. Uh, the scientific establishment is organized. There's a series of institutions that more or less came to shape somewhere between 50 to 100 years ago that are still there as if nothing had happened. And they are run by people who are tremendously educated, hyper-educated almost, uh, and um, very much aware of their um, self-value so that if you are not hyper-educated and if you are not from the inside, if you have not risen up this hierarchy, and the hierarchy is terribly important to them, um, you are dismissed almost out of hand. So those are the elites. Martin, can I, yeah. I mean, there are many elites today, I mean, who didn't go to college or dropped out of college or, I mean, we live in a world in which the, the, the traditional uh, the traditional requirements for getting uh, being a business CEO or a government um, bigwig have really been upended. I mean, so is elite really based on credentials or or, or something else? There is uh, my sense of it is. I mean, there's always exceptions. Um, my sense of it is that accreditation is very important. Uh, accreditation, I guess, need not be a college degree, but usually is. Um, but if you cannot point to something, uh, for example, when I talk, I mean, this is me talking as an elite, what do I say? Well, I'm a CIA analyst or ex-CIA, that suddenly gives me an accreditation, right? So it's not a scholastic one, but it, it, it explains why you should be listening to me. I am an authority. Um, and I think that is the case within uh, the elites. And they dwell within these uh, very top-down institutions and, and behave in very hierarchical and bureaucratic ways. So that's, that, that is the elites. And of course, my, my prime instance of that is modern government. Uh, the, the way the government has been org organized since, say, 
the beginning of the 20th century till to the end of it, till now, uh, has been very top-down, very um, expert-driven, a lot of importance given to uh, scientific solutions, that sort of thing. Okay, um, yeah. You, yeah, you say that uh, the elite, the politics of the elite rules despotically over the public sphere. Uh, used that, to. Used to. Used by, and, to. By, and by that, you mean what? That they rule despotically, the elites. I mean, even, a, even in a democracy. Uh, I mean that in the olden days, and by that I mean not that long ago, maybe 15, 20 years, um, if you were an outsider with an outsider opinion, need not be offensive even, need not be outrageous or radical. You were just, if you were an outsider, they could silence you by a very simple expedience. They just denied you an audience. If you were, uh, you went to government or you went to the media and they thought this is a little too out there, they did not have to give you an audience that you you could be shut out. So it wasn't a tyrannical thing. It was simply a, um, there was a public sphere and the public sphere, which of course there has been all kinds of discussion about that and very profound books written about it. The thing that struck me when I had my revelation about the revolt of the public and about this new world of information was how narrow that public sphere had used to be. How we, what we accepted as a broad spectrum of debate and discussion is called out many, many layers of, of uh, opinion, information, even whole areas uh, of discussion. Uh, science hardly ever made it in, uh, the arts hardly ever made it in, philosophy never made it in, history never made it in. It Mainly politics was queen. And if you are honest enough, you, you realize that by politics we mean what's the president doing today? And that's true in almost every democratic country. So. Okay, so the, you, you, you talk about the elites as this despotic control of the public sphere um, and they believe themselves, you say, to be the unquestioned masters of their domain. And you say they were for many years. And now you say something's changed, that there's this public that has arisen that is going to battle the elites for control of the public sphere, that there's this tectonic collision um, between the public and the elites. Uh, you say a couple times that the public is a singular noun for a plural object. Uh, something you take from Walter Lippmann. Um, say a little more about what this public is. You say that's the harder one to, to talk about. Yeah, the public, the public is not as simple as might seem. It, 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 as you know from the book, I try to tease out what the public is not, which is probably a, a uh, cowardly way of avoiding saying what it is. Um, it's not the people. The public always tries to impersonate the people, but it's not. Uh, it's not the masses. That was something that was uh, uh, much more in, in uh, the 20th century. It's not the crowd on the street, although the public and the crowd have a very sexy, intimate relationship. As they say on Facebook, it, it's complicated. So at the end, I did go with Walter uh, Lippmann's definition. I, if you don't mind, I'll read it to you. Um, the public he said, is not a fixed body of individuals. It is merely the persons who are interested in an affair and can affect it only by supporting or opposing the actors. Now, 
Of course, today the public itself has become one of the most powerful actors on the political stage. That's different from Lipman's time. But, and, and, and essentially a thesis of my book, but, but if you pay attention to Lipman's definition, you see that the public isn't one. It's many. It's a many-headed animal. And it changes according to the affair under discussion. I mean, so, so give us a couple of examples of what you mean by the public, the many publics that you talk about in your book. Oh, yeah. Um, look what's happening in France now. Okay, I mean, this is like a, almost, to me, it's like somebody went to a laboratory and purified the concept of the public, and they came out with these yellow vests, you know, the, the gilets jaunes. Um, what happened there? What happened in France? Um, Emmanuel Macron, who himself, by the way, is a little bit of a revolt of a public character. People don't give him credit for that because they think he's an establishmentarian. But if you think about Macron, his party did not exist one year before he was elected. Most of the people that came in with him were new people. And he had almost no experience. I mean, his experience level was not quite Donald Trump when he got elected, but almost. Um, but he, he chose to um, basically impose a tax on, on fuel in, in, uh, in France. In provincial France, people started um, Facebook, what they called anger groups. If you go to your, your um, high school French, group de colère, they called it. And if you go to those anger groups, these are people who have for many months now, by the way, uh, almost a year, have been venting their hostility to Macron's government. It's not just the fuel tax. And these are, you look on them, they don't look like revolutionaries. Some of them are gray-haired ladies. I mean, it, it is, it's, it's a very interesting dynamic. And 20 years ago, they would not have existed. They did not exist in the mind of Emmanuel Macron. He was an elite in that regard. It would, they did not exist to the, to the French government. They, did, they had no idea who these people were. And one day on Facebook, they decided, let us get together and bring, wear these yellow, yellow vests. That's a very clever idea to brand your movement. Um, and let's go out and stop traffic and go to Paris. Um, and here we are today, Emmanuel Macron is apologizing and backtracking and taking down his uh, gas tax and raising the minimum wage and trying desperately to recover. His uh, popularity is down in the teens last I looked. Um, and this group became what, a public. They were just a bunch of individuals in a place of no importance. They have no leaders. They have no program. They have no ideology uh, to speak of. Um, but they had a very strong sense of what they were against. They were against Macron, and Macron to them, unfortunately for him, was the avatar of the elites. So how, how, are, how is the public, and, and you, you have many examples of what you call the public in your book. I mean, Occupy Wall Street, yes. uh, the Tea Party, yes. uh, the protesters in Israel, the tent, the tent uh -huh. city. Mm -hmm. um, how are these different from the civil rights protests or the anti-war protests in the United States or around the world, the 68 protests, in which you have people angry at the establishment, angry at the system, um, and they sit and they, they, they occupy the streets, they occupy buildings, and they say no. How is this different? 
there is a fundamental difference. The fundamental difference is back in uh, those days, and alas, I am old enough to have partaken of that, um, you needed a very hierarchical organization to be able to conduct any kind of protest. Radical groups were amongst the most disciplined and hierarchical, uh, and I, I guess I say, I say from, I speak from personal experience uh, that you can, can imagine. There were little mirror images of, of the great big uh, um, societal, societal um, entities that they were fighting against. So um, they had uh, ideologies, very, very strong ideologies. They had uh, people who were in charge and people who, who gave orders. They, they had printing presses. Um, so they got out, you know, the word out. The amazing thing about the public today is it has none of those things. It can erupt. And so basically in the old days, you needed to plan it very carefully. And you needed uh, a lot of lead time. And although it was a much more, um, I would say, permanent, when you have radical groups, uh, radical parties, radical entities, these are permanent groups. Uh, but on the other hand, very slow moving, very slow moving. Uh, nowadays, you have there are there's nobody in charge of the Yellow Jackets. There was nobody in charge of Occupy Wall Street. There was nobody in charge of. Uh, and in fact, that is that is their um, their strength because they kind of erupt out of nowhere. It is also their weakness because in the end they get asked, well, so so who's in charge here? So we can talk to you about what you want. And it's a babble of voices. Nobody wants to say I'm in, to say you are in charge. To say I am a leader immediately. They come after you. So that's great. And and this is maybe the transition point to I guess if if, if you'll allow this from the descriptive analysis to maybe the, the 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 normative or political analysis of your book. You say at one point that you wrote the book out of a great concern as a citizen for the future of liberal democracy. So many people today see all these protests not top-down, democratic, equal, as being a positive. I mean, this is democracy in action, the yellow vests, the Occupy Wall Street, and they get Macron or they get uh, the United States to change their policy. Isn't that a, isn't that a good thing, people would say? And yet you say you're, you're afraid for liberal democracy uh, as a result. And I think this comes down to this question of authority, which is in the subtitle of your book, yes. The Crisis of Authority. So could you talk a little bit about why this newfound um, public and the rise of these publics is so dangerous in your mind? It, it's not, and I don't want to convey that, that at all. And I think in many ways, you're right. It is very democratic. When I started writing the book, um, I thought I had picked my side, and I thought that was oh, my side. Excuse me. Uh, it, the 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 uh, connection just cut out for a sec. So can you start, can I ask yes. you to start that answer again? Sure, sure, sure. Um, I asked you why it's so dangerous in your mind. Right. Correct. Yeah, the public, I don't find to be the danger. And uh, when, I, when I wrote the book, when I started to write the book, I started to research the book. Um, I thought that was, that, I thought that I had a side in this, in this, Collision that I talk about, and I thought the public was my side. Um, 
The danger is not in the public, although I'll get back to that in a minute. The danger is in the collision. The danger is in these swarms of, of uh, you know, individuals that suddenly appear seemingly out of nowhere, completely rock the, pol the political life of, of, of countries, and crash against these elites who desperately want to cling to what they felt they have earned and don't want to yield, except under tremendous pressure like, like Emmanuel Macron, when it's too late. Um, that's the danger. The danger is this mutual incomprehension behind, between um, a public that simply loathes uh, the elites, finds them to be not like them, finds them to be people who get elected, suddenly start talking very strangely, that the way they talk, the way they move, you want to go be where they are, you have to basically get through bodyguards, you have to get through metal detecting machines, it's like these people are protected and they don't want to hear from you. Um, that's the way they feel about it. On the other side of that, you have these elites who look at the public and see as what, what um, Hillary Clinton would call a basket of deplorables, people who are just irrational and crazy and making a lot of noise over nothing. Um, the danger for the public is when you are against, because they are, they, if you have no ideology, if you have no organization, if you have no real positive program, and what unifies you is this impulse to be against, you can slip over into nihilism. You can go to the point where just bashing at institutions, that no matter how imperfect they may be, have kept us you know, free and, and, and secure all these years, just bashing at them feels good because you're doing something. And these institutions, and the sense is, I think, by a lot of these people, these institutions are almost immortal. No matter how hard you hit them, uh, they will endure. Well, they're, they're not. They're, they're human and they can, they can fail uh, as any institution can, uh, any human endeavor. So, um, so that's the danger from the, from the uh, public. The danger from the elites, honestly, I, I, uh, the history was my thing in school. I am trying to think of a class, an elite class, that was more detached from reality, from the social reality of ordinary people than this particular that we have. And I mean, I touch on it briefly only because to me it's, it's symbolic, but all the sex scandals that, that, that seem to pour down, all the, um, you know, the, the fact that the Hollywood and politicians seem to be the same thing in some weird way, um, this, this is not a class that's, that's interested in, in doing the national interest. It's not interested in particular philosophies of, of politics. Um, all of that seems to have gone by the wayside. It's basically being, it's just being an elite that seems to matter. Um, so the danger from their side is that the elites just want to be elites. And by the way, all those things that the public hates, the distance, the barriers, that's what the elites want. That's, that's, that's their reward for having made it big. So it's the collision between a frustrated public that tips into nihilism and a really, really out of touch elite that sometimes tips into, um, I don't know what, the, the, the French Revolution type indifference uh, that, that concerned me. That was the danger I saw. That is what I hope I addressed in, in my book.
But you also – you I think that's really well put. You also talk about the crisis of authority. Yes. And you, you say that um, you have a thesis, um, which is a bit of a I, – I, I don't want to misspeak and I don't want to – there's a kind of um, techno-fatalist aspect to this thesis um, which you may resist as a description of it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it because that because while I agree with a lot of it, I find the techno-fatalism problematic, and I'm not sure what that makes me think about it. But the, 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 the thesis, as I understand it, is – with the tsunami of information, um, the uh, the the way that elites have kept authority throughout history is that they control the narrative, and they right. control the facts, and they're able to say um, this is what counts and this is what doesn't count. And with this um, with the tsunami of information and websites and social media, uh, uncertainty has entered the world in such a way that you argue it is simply no longer possible to have authority, at least on a large national industrial scale. And the result is a loss of authority in institutions. Um, and, uh, and you think that's, and one of those institutions is liberal democracy. And you think that's in danger of potentially being, uh, lost. At least that's how I understood your argument. That is a fair statement, but I'm going to tweak it a lot. Um, it's not techno-fatalism. Um, the, the crisis of authority, which, by the way, is what I think we should all be concentrating on at the moment. I, I wrote The Revolt of the Public. At the time I wrote the book, nobody was seeing it. That kind of blew me away. I had to had that privilege purchase CIA. I grant you that. But it seemed to me that all you had to do was open your eyes and look at the world. There was this revolt going on sporadically in the world, but they gave them little names like, you know, the Arab Spring or, you know, Occupy, and they didn't see the thread running through all of that. Well, I think after 2016, everybody knows there's a revolt to the public. That's not an argument anymore. So now we need to focus on, on, on the crisis of authority. And my thesis is actually as follows. Um, there's an obviously been an erosion of, of, of authority. I mean, if you look at um, John F. Kennedy's time, for example, and you look at uh, trust in government at that time, it was between 70 and 80 percent consistently. And John F. Kennedy could put his foot in it on the Bay of Pigs and his, and his trust would go up because people wanted to support him when he was in trouble. Today, for government, uh, the trust is between 20 and 30 percent and has been there for years. Uh, for Congress, it's in the teens. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Um, same is true of other um, institutions, by the way. It's not just government. Um, trust in the media is also below 30 percent. I mean, the days when a journalist, uh, an anchorman, for goodness sakes, could be voted the most trusted uh, person in America, that's long gone. Um, so. Techno-fatalism would mean this flood of information is perpetually erosive of authority. Um, I don't know that that can, that can be said. All I'm saying in my book is that the kind of authority that the industrial model bestowed on these institutions, it is very much destructive of that. Um, and if you want to look at um, a more positive side of it, if you had elites who earned their authority 
in the same way that, I mean, there is an, a digital elite. You can see how that works. It's very different, very different from the old industrial elites. It's not uh, an investiture of authority that you keep forever. It's something you earn basically on a day-by-day -day basis. So um, when government and these institutions in general align a lot more sensibly with what is the social existence of the people that, that they govern. We don't live in hierarchical world anymore. I mean, when I, I mean, many of the young people that are my, my kids' generation, they meet their, their spouses online. I mean, literally, you, you click and suddenly you've got a wife or a, or a girlfriend or something. You know, it's the speed of light. I wish I had lived in these times, I tell you, but uh, when I was young. But, um, and then you go to the government and you want to get um, you know, a passport and it takes six weeks and you want to, you want to get a building, building permit and it takes probably years in some places. Uh, you, when you get a government elite that understands the, the capacities of the digital world and can sync up with the public, you can, you can restore authority. It is not a permanently lost situation. But we are in a dangerous moment right now when the elites come from a very different uh, historical corner than the public. Public is coming from the future and the elites are coming from the past. There's a lot in your book uh, that recalls Han Arendt in some way. I mean, and I know you never cite her. I'm not sure how much you've ever read her. Oh, yeah. um, have you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. did, did you read her essay, What is Authority? Uh, no, before you no. before you wrote the book, yeah, I and didn't. she begins the essay saying, and this is written in the 1950s, that this essay would better be called "What Was Authority" because it's something that can no longer exist. Now, this is in the 1950s, so so long before what you would call the tsunami of of uh, yeah. information. Um, but in her mind, authority uh, comes from a kind of well, comes from a trinity of uh, unquestioned. Uh, um, sources that uh, we obey willingly and happily, uh, tradition, religion, uh, custom, etc., and that these things are no longer uh, able to uh, assert themselves in, in modern society. And so we don't live in political societies of authority anymore. We have to, in a sense, create authority, we have to create political uh, unities or political um, collectivities based in persuasion and consent. Um, and you, at the end of your book, come to this question of how we recreate legitimacy or authority. Um, and a lot of the ideas you offer are ideas that um, in some way or shape I think she'd be interested in. Certainly the return to local powers yes. and local governments yes. and federalism. Uh, the idea in her mind being A, that uh, from the bottom up, uh, people uh, pick and select people who are, in their minds, qualified, and they go up to the next level, and then they pick the next level of people who are qualified, and, and they go up to the next level, and you build a pyramid from the bottom up of authority instead of the top down. And, and you talk a bit about that in your book. Do you want to say anything about that as, as a way to rebuild authority? Well, I think you put it probably better than, than I would have. Um, I'm going to read that essay. I, had, I was not aware of that. I'm very interested in anything that has to do with, with authority. Um, yeah, I mean, 
part of the um, malady, I would call it, of modern government is that it likes to do these great big blanket programs, one size fits all. And it may have been a time when that was possible. I think when you had, for example, such an injustice as uh, Jim Crow, a, a civil rights law could gather enough of a consensus across the, world, uh, the country that you could say, well, this is a great big intrusion. You know, basically, you're commanding people to behave in a certain way, but, but it had justice on its side. Unfortunately, there are very few instances like that. Uh, it, it, it's just in the nature of modern government, no matter what the, uh, the, the issue involved, and, and the tendency is to call it problems. I think I just did that myself. These are not problems, these are conditions. These are social, economic, and political conditions. These are not mathematical problems that you could just come up with an answer for and then impose on everybody. So to the degree today that anybody tries to do that, you are alienating probably the majority of the people. So that to the degree that you allow the people, I mean, we are blessed with a uh, federal structure and, and within the federal structure, a lot of local authority. So to the degree that you push those authorities down, um, the way we seem to be structured and populated these days in any case, where most people of political beliefs tend to live in certain spots, uh, there will be um, a lot more harmony, I think, and, and, and authority will be accepted because it, it emanates from the people themselves, it emanates from the public, it emanates from those who are uh, in a, some particular municipality or county or, or state. Uh, versus having somebody in Washington, never, you know, in the most beloved place in the world for, for Americans. I mean, complaining about Washington has always been a tradition, but now it's, it, it's, uh, it's radical. I mean, it basically, they don't want to hear from Washington. They want to work out things themselves, and yet the programs keep coming. So, I mean, I think authority uh, entails us recognizing when we look at um, candidates for the presidency, for example, that the man who says, I have the solution that will cure you all, is that is not a man we want to be president, all right? And when you look at a man who says, I have some ideas, but I could be wrong, I want that man. The problem is, we as a public elect people who promise us things that they cannot deliver on. And if they say, I have only ideas, and let's let's do trial and error. We say, who is this man? You know, get him out of here. You know, so in some sense, the public, you know, we, this is this is a democracy. I, I am not a conspiracy theorist. I probably missed a few conspiracies for that reason. But my feeling is, um, uh, basically, the public elects the politicians, and then they revolt against. And in the end, um, you get this pathology where the public starts to look for people more and more outside the mainstream and you end up with um, you know Donald Trump for example somebody who had no experience his main qualification was that he had no experience in government so that that's 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 the, that's you have a uh, a new essay this so this book we should say was published as an ebook I think three or right. three years ago and yeah, that's where I read it yeah, yeah 2014. Yeah, I, I read the ebook and um, contacted you, and you came generously and spoke at the Hannah Arendt yeah. Center. That was um, fun. 
but you have in the new edition, you have a, a long final essay, uh, not exclusively, but much of which is on Donald Trump and um, what he means. And, um, you know, you say uh, that we have this failed elite system. Uh, at one point, you said that the face of democracy is inextric inextricably bound to the fate of the elites in democratic nations. Yeah. And I, and, I, and I take your claim to be the elites have failed. The yes. elites have failed to give people the world they promised them, I think, a better world. Schools have failed. Universities have failed. Uh, you know, I mean, we, can, we can talk about what that failure means, but clearly a lot of people feel the elites have failed, and yet who's going to come in and fix things? More elites. And then the elites come in and they fail, and then who's going to come in and fix things? And so on the one hand, you talk about a mutual protection pack amongst the elites where they protect each other. Yeah. And on the other hand, you raise this specter of nihilism, which you've mentioned a couple times and is a big part yes. of the book. Yes. Bigger part in the new volume, new edition of the book. Yes. Um, and and you say that Trump is really a product of nihilism, uh, if I understand it correctly, which I think is is right. Um, maybe give me a quick definition of what you mean by nihilism. Yeah, quick is hard. Um, I think it's it's the point that is reached by the public uh, at which. Even tearing down an institution without an alternative in mind feels like progress, feels like a good thing, feels like you're achieving something. Um, it, it means destruction. I mean, to me, the ultimate nihilists are these individuals who pick up a gun and start shooting people. No, let me and, ask you about that, because you, you mentioned a couple of them in the book. Yes. One was the Las Vegas uh, yes. shooter. Yes. But you also mentioned Dylan Roof, who um, sh uh, picked up a gun and shot a number of people in a church yes. in, in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. I know a number of people in my circles would say he's not a nihilist, he's a racist. And you call him a nihilist. And I'm just wondering what you mean by that and why he's not a racist and what that and what's the difference in your mind. Oh, he could be a racist and a nihilist. I mean, there are many racists who don't pick up guns and start shooting people. I mean, what was he achieving? What was, what was he achieving? Uh, these people um, that do this come from uh, every conceivable ideological stripe. And by the way, they tend to write, and he's one of them, these long, dense manifestos uh, about how wonderful they are and how they're acting uh, in, in a noble cause by shooting uh, innocent men and women in a church. Um, but many of them have no ideology at all. They are just expressing themselves. To me, there comes a sense, and if you ever spend a lot of time on the internet, um, you see this, all right? The people who just basically are venting any anybody who has I mean if you want to know when you have made it on the internet you start to get death threats I mean it's it's not even a thing it, that you don't worry it, that's what happens if you're if you're a woman you get rape threats I mean it, it's the most ast astonishing thing the, the the digital culture is such that if you 
reach a certain prominence on anything that is, say, political, um, people are going to start making violent, violent um, threats. Um, well, at a certain point, that gets crossed over into the real world, and somebody just kind of picks up a gun and starts shooting people. But why, why would you make a violent threat at somebody who has a political opinion? Uh, there's just a kind of a, a, a sense of negation, a sense of, of, of uh, denial uh, um, that tips over into nihilism, which is destruction. It's, it's basically destruction for its own sake. doesn't matter. Um, you know, half of these people know they're going to get killed. It uh, doesn't matter. They're, they're, and they, by the way, as, as you can tell from the book, um, they to themselves are the most righteous human beings alive. They feel like they are the noblest of the nobles and the purest of the pure, and, and they, the ones that survive and have dozens of deaths on their on their heads and, and, and blood on their hands, they still feel that way. Um, so it's to me, um, if you want to find out what what a nihilist is, you can be a racist. I mean, I I hate to admit it, but when I moved to this great state of Virginia that I live in right now, the bird machine was in charge, and basically their deal was. You vote for us, and we keep everything the way it should be, okay? Um, so that was very racist, totally racist. Um, but nobody shot anybody. And you can be a racist, and, and that makes you a contemptible person in, in a certain sense. But a nihilist is somebody who takes it that extra step of destructiveness. You gain nothing as a racist by walking in a church and shooting a few individuals. These are not people who are important. Why are you doing this? What is he? Well, just smashing, just killing, just destroying is is what the nihilist is about. And and you 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 talk about how Trump is a nihilist in your view, or you say I think he's a nihilist, or you or he acts in a nihilist way. Um, and. And you have a very interesting analysis of him, which is that when you are elected into office as a nihilist, you're now in a paradox. You're not, you have a dilemma. You have to, on the one hand, govern, and yet you also have to be a nihilist. And Arendt actually talks a lot about this in her book, um, The Origins of Totalitarianism. And the way that totalitarian movements solve this problem, in her mind, is through terror. Right. And they yeah. terrorize the world uh, and erase any uh, erase anyone who would stand in their way and right. and and create an ideology that keeps moving. Trump, you think, is not a not totalitarian. And I think you're right and not a authoritarian. And I think you're right. And you say that his solution is simply to um, uh, govern a little bit, but then every once in a while yell with loud and vulgar sounds um, <laughs> in this in this way and you have a lot of very beautiful prose about Trump's vulgarity um, <laughs> one of the I'm going to end with this question to you one of yeah. the most um, provocative parts of Arendt's writing in Origins of Totalitarianism for me is a little chapter on the alliance between the elite and the mob that she writes. And she asks this question of why the elite was attracted to the mob. Why the elite during the 1930s was attracted to the vulgarity of totalitarian movements. 
Now, again, I, I, neither of us think Trump's totalitarian, but we do think he's vulgar. And there's an undeniable interest that the elite has in Trump's vulgarity um, that I think is important. And her answer is nihilism. Um, but it's a different definition of nihilism than yours. Not totally different, but a little different. It's the Nietzschean definition, which is that nihilism is the devaluing of the highest values. The, there are no highest values. All values are equal. And she says that with the rise of nihilism and the devaluing of highest values, what you might call the loss of authority, um, uh, all the pious banalities of the bourgeoisie became vulgar all the claims to elite status. Um, by the way, she cites Tocqueville in his uh, book on the French Revolution here saying that the mob never resents the elite when the elite has power, when that power is justified. They only resent the power of the elite when they see the elite having power that's no longer justified. And I think that's something that really fits with your book. You, you're part of what you're arguing is that the elite has failed, and now that failure is visible in an incredibly vibrant way to the mob or to the publics, and thus the power of the elite is no longer justified, and they're rebelling. And so RN says that the pious banalities and of the bourgeoisie and the and the elite um, were now no different than the vulgar and cynical dismissals by the totalitarians, and in fact they saw the totalitarians their vulgarity and their dismissal of pieties as frank admissions of the worst and even courageous, a courageous disregard of pretenses. Right. Um, this sounds a lot, I, I think yeah. you would, I think this is sounds a, a, a bit uh, in concert with your book. And that's one of the reasons I, I mean, I love your book for many reasons, but there is a lot of uh, interesting overlap between you and, and Hannah Arendt writing in the 1950s. What do you make of this attraction of the elite for someone like Donald Trump and for the publics? Why are we so fascinated by them? Well, I mean, I'm not sure that the elites are, fa are fascinated by him. I mean, I guess we are because he, he sells so well. Um, my, uh, one of my intellectual pillars that I tend to lean on very heavily is uh, Jose Ortega Gasset, uh, who was writing in the 30s around the time that, that all those uh, movements that aren't uh, Arendt wrote about later uh, were 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 being formed, and he was watching that and 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 pondering it. And essentially, for him, a true elite is someone that the public aspires to be like, right? Is if, and we have that have had that here in the United States. I mean, for many many years, probably a century and a half. Mothers told their uh, kids to be honest like George Washington. And I mean, that was just take it for granted or, or be, you know, persevere like Thomas Edison, you know? I mean, uh, there were these models that uh, people, and they had been so in their day, uh, that people wanted to, to aspire to. So that the elites, in fact, raised the general tone, not because they were scolding us and telling us to be more, you know, less racist or whatever, but because they had integrity in their lives. Their lives you know, embodied the narratives that the public felt were um, uh, of value to them. And so they, in their own, each one of us would, would want to aspire to be like that in some way. Ortega says, 
when it's when a society is healthy, that's what happens. When a society is unhealthy and starts to break down, the elites start to imitate the public, which is what you're talking about. Uh, suddenly, um, the language of the elites is a very popular language. The dress of the elites is a very popular dress. Yes, they're all hidden behind their bodyguards and they're all behind their metal detecting machines, but suddenly they're just like you and me, except not. So why should the public admire somebody who's pretending to be like them? So there is, I think in that regard, a, um, uh, a tremendous loss of authority, tremendous loss of authority. The whole point of being an elite is you should be projecting something that we should want to aspire to. And if you're aspiring to be like me, then what's the point? Part, so, of, the problem, part of the problem, Martin, is that in order to have these elites that we aspire to, we have to allow the elite in some sense to wear a mask, to be hypocrites, because nobody is perfect. And if you are constantly unmasking people, yeah, uh, yeah. it's but very hard I, for them to have that respect. I think it's more about us than about the elites. The elites are who they are. I mean, George Washington, no doubt, in many ways, was a shit, all right? I mean, he had many things that he did that, that modern people would uh, find horrifying. Thomas Edison, I've read some uh, also very negative things about him. But that's not the point. The point is they also had within them these qualities that the public of their day thought were admirable, all right? And I'll give you two movies if you want to just basically have a, a nice, nice evening one time and, and just get what I'm talking about. See a movie called, I think it's called Young Tom Edison, and it's, of all people, Mickey Rooney playing the inventor, all right? Um, and then see that and immediately follow it with social network, okay? Both Edison and Zuckerberg are flawed human beings, all right? Both have in, innovated amazingly, all right? Young Edison, the way it's portrayed in the movie, he is a hero. He, he is he's persevering, he's rising from nowhere. They both have the same story. They come from nowhere and become great, right? But one of them does it because he perseveres, the other one because he's a jerk. Essentially, he's a jerk. That's a movie, the, the, the theme of that movie is we should not aspire to be like him. He is a bad person. Yeah, he's rich and he, he struck it uh, big, but it was all random and, and he's a bad person. So. It's about us, it's not about the elites. The elites are human. We should not expect them to be anything other than. We should focus on those things that are admirable in them. And we should select those. Again, we get back to who do you vote for president? The man who says, I can solve all your ills, or the man who says, let's try this idea and see what happens, trial and error. Um, if we vote for the first, then we have no right to complain. If we vote for the second, we start to change the whole elite uh, tone to something that is more admirable. And, 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 you know, to finish up with Trump, I would say um, he is a, a creature of this, this um, crisis of authority environment, all right? Um, the thing about Trump that I find troubling is not Trump, is that the people who oppose him give him sort of um, they ascribe superpowers to him, right? I mean, he's the reason the world has gone crazy and terrible things are not happening all the time. All the turbulence in, in, in the social and political environment, all the partisanship, the nationalism, this is all him. So if only he could be dispensed with, 
the world would return to sanity. So enormous energies that I'm seeing are being dedicated to thinking of tricks that would make Trump go away. Well, my belief is, and you remember at, at the, uh, at the uh, conference in 2017, I asked the, um, the cosmic Trump question, all right? The cosmic Trump question is, is Donald Trump really a world historical figure, a kind of populist Caesar who can reshape the world to his will, or is he a surface manifestation of deeper structural forces, in my opinion, and hypothetically, our chaotic information environment? Um, I believe the latter. And you know, to make to, to, to come to the, the short the short end of my answer and 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 skip through a lot of detail. Um, I, I think if you focus on an individual, I think the, the, um, the public is, uh, in choosing Trump, has signaled that it is willing to impose the truly untrammeled relations of the digital world, what I was talking about earlier, uh, on our very fragile political institutions. But that's, that's the thing, of, that, that's, if you want to take one important, you know, the, the diagnostic point of Trump is that one, okay? The public was willing to impose this. Um, if he goes away tomorrow, if he does, decides to retire to do whatever the heck he does at Mar-a-Lago, okay, um, and, and never is heard from again, um, all that is, the turbulence is going to remain unabated, and it may get worse. It may come to a day where um, all the uh, ferocious resistance warriors look back and and think of Trump as the good old days. Well, what I love about the book and talking to you is you really do focus the questions on um, the big problems, the crisis of authority, the, the, the general uh, nihilistic tenor of the age, uh, the way information and the tsunami of information um, – erodes uh, claims of authority. Um, and uh, you bring us to, as you call it, the question of the millennium, which yep. is uh, the revolt of the public and the crisis of authority. So yep. I hope, uh, hope people get a chance to buy the book and I hope to get to see you soon. Thanks again, Martin. Oh, it's been fun. Let's do it again. All right. Thanks very much. Take care, Roger.